This is episode number 180 of the Rising Man podcast with Zach Carlson. Even the tallest mountains are summited by the same small footsteps. Good morning, Rising Man fam. Jetty Azuma here for another episode of the Rising Man podcast. Grateful to be behind the mic and with you this morning. Before we go into today's episode and I introduce my guest, I want to remind you guys to go check out risingman.org. So many opportunities are available for you to jump in, to take your journey into manhood more seriously, to take yourself more seriously, whether that's joining our 12-week Inferno team, stepping into the fire circles and becoming a bigger part of the Rising Man community in that way, or stepping in for our next Compass Rites of Passage journey. This and so much more available to you. Just go to risingman.org and check it out today. All right, family, Mr. Zach Carlson is joining us today for the Rising Man podcast. In 2012, Zach was homeless, addicted to drugs, and lost. He thought his life was over. It was only the beginning. Since then, Zach's journey has been the adventure of a lifetime. Central to this change has been men's work, community, and his career as a coach. The story of his life is his message, a message of hope, a message of clarity, a message of purpose. Zach is grateful to have worked with and learned from some of the best coaches and men on the planet. And he's designed his life around the virtues of service to others, self-mastery, and curiosity. In this episode, Zach shared about his history with drug use and getting clean. We spoke about the shame associated with addiction and why it's not so simple to just begin talking about the fears we've been numbing down. Zach reflected on the skills we learned from drug use, lying, dishonesty, hiding, and how we become what we practice. And lastly, Zach shared the overwhelm of facing off with addiction and getting back on the right track with some inspiring thoughts and simple steps for overcoming addiction. This episode was inspired by the recent loss of our brother Silvio Acevedo, who his death was related to an accidental overdose and felt very compelled to reach out to the community of men who are currently battling addiction and addictive tendencies. So I want to commemorate this episode in honor of our brother Silvio and also to any man out there who is suffering from addiction, who is battling the rigors of that journey. Zach and I go into much more detail about each of our experiences with this in the episode, but just want to begin by saying that you're not alone. And this is a great opportunity today to reach out, to get some support, to open up. Even though we know it's not simple, just reach out, start the conversation, have that courage, have enough courage to reach out and start that conversation with somebody today. All right, without further ado, Zach Carlson. All right, here we are, Rising Man family. I've got a beautiful brother of mine joining me here today, a man that I've been excited to bring here on the show, Zach Carlson, coming in from Twin Cities, Minnesota. My brother, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jetty. Grateful to be here. Honored to have you here, man. In the nature of our conversation today, we're going to speak about addiction and substance use. And particularly, this conversation was inspired by a recent loss in my family, my community, our Rising Man community. So before we get into anything, I just want to dedicate this episode to Silvio Acevedo, our little bro who passed just two weeks ago. And grateful for you to step up here, Zach, and and bring your story and your experience with these challenges to the forefront to benefit other men who might find themselves in, in a similar situation. So thanks for being here, man. Yeah, honored. Before we jump into your story and your experiences and everything you have to share, let me ask you the question I'm sure you've been waiting for. That is, what does it mean to be a man? It's about responsibility, ownership, and owning 
our actions, my actions. And if I'm not going to do that in the moment, I do it at some point. Part of my story with addiction is that I was out of integrity for years and there was so much that I needed to own and I wasn't able to do it in that moment. And so to be able to go back and and own that, take responsibility, ownership of it later, that to me is ground level when it comes to how I'm showing up as a man. Everything else that I do is built on that. But if I'm not owning my decisions, if I'm not owning my words, if I'm not owning my presence, anything that I build after that is on sand. And so for me, ground level is 100% responsibility, especially when it's hard and awkward and uncomfortable. Yeah. Let's start right there because even if somebody who's listening doesn't have substance abuse issues or addictive behaviors to something specific, I think that's something everyone can relate to is that experience of having things that we know represent being out of integrity. I know what that visceral feeling of being out of integrity, out of honor is. I think everybody else can relate to that. But the pain of facing off with it or the fear of what might ensue by facing off with it and taking ownership for it is greater than the pain of sitting with it. And in order to sit with that pain of just being with it and having it unresolved is usually where the numbing or the distractions or the whatever we have to do to forget about it has to come in. Is that similar to your experience? 100%. And there's a system in the body, the central nervous system, right, that indicates fight, flight, freeze, fawn. When that gets dysregulated, like that desire to hide out comes on really strong, that desire to flee, to put on a mask. Yeah, when I'm out of integrity, I'm triggered, right? I know it. In some ways, we all know it. A brother of mine said, you won't always know what the right thing to do is, but your body is really good at telling you what the wrong thing to do is. And Mm -hmm. once we've nurtured that just a little bit, you know, sitting with other men, even reading books, listening to podcasts, we start to get a sense of like, oh, like I'm out of integrity here. And unfortunately, once we've crossed that threshold, like we can't stuff that down quite as easily anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, everyone will understand what that feeling is and will recognize it. They're probably sitting at home nodding their heads right now saying, yeah, and I've got a few of those things right now that I'm not facing off with or taking ownership for it. It might be a conversation with somebody that you know you need to have. It might be something you need to fess up to, admit to. Even if it's just admitting it to yourself, if you haven't admitted to yourself that I have a problem or I'm irresponsible with my money, the way I'm treating my girlfriend is not appropriate or up to speed with how I want to be right now, whatever that is, those conversations can be really painful. The anticipation of what might happen in lieu of facing off with it. And so it's it's understandable why we would divert ourselves or avoid it, procrastinate. I mean, these are things that I've talked to thousands of men at this point. These are uniform for our generation. We're used to kicking our problems further down the road instead of just facing off with them. So what do you think is required to start moving towards the more fearful outcome, the facing off with it and taking responsibility and ownership for it? Maybe first, what do you think is it that actually blocks us from doing that in the first place? I think it's isolation, right? Like, I don't feel like I can answer that without giving the answer to the other question. What do we need? We need other men. We need community. I know that I need that. I need to be seen in my mess. You've helped me with this. I need to be seen in my mess and to know that there are people who are going to still be in my life when the shit hits the fan, when things get really ugly and I'm seen in that, that they're going to say, how can I stand with you? How can I challenge you to rise above this? 
I can't do that myself. Like I tried to do that. That's the whole lone wolf thing and it doesn't work. Mm. Well, I'll say it works until it doesn't and then it never works again. And Mm. my answer is isolation is what keeps us men, especially in that cycle of hell. And then Mm. community is what gets us out of there. That's the irony of it, isn't it? Because I think if we really try to simplify it, the fear of facing off with it is the fear that we'll be exiled, cast out, not loved, not accepted, not received by our community. But in reality, when we're sitting on top of these pains that we're holding on to, it's actually isolation. It may be surrounded by people, but that feeling is very lonely. The feeling of hiding out, like you've got a secret. The secretive nature of addiction and other challenges is destroys you from the inside out. Right. Again, whether it's addiction or something else, when you're sitting on top of something and nobody else knows it about you, that's one of the most lonely feelings in the world. I don't care if you're surrounded by people. And Mm -hmm. I like what you said also, that's one of the greatest medicines that there is, is being able to speak your truth in ideally in the same physical space as other human beings and to see that they don't just head for the hills. They don't look for the nearest exit when you share these vulnerable truths about yourself. Yeah, that's medicine right there. And I think yeah. those are exactly the experiences that more people need to have. I also want to say that we come by that really honestly. Like, I think we've all had an experience where we showed up vulnerably and we got, you know, kicked in the shins, laughed at, made mm-hmm. fun of. Like, it's not random that like we have this aversion to being seen. There's a reason for that. And so it's a risk to lean in. And we can do that skillfully, too. We don't need to go to the guy on the corner and tell him our deepest, darkest secrets. There's spaces where they're designed for doing this work. Absolutely. I mean, that's a brilliant point. Thank you for bringing that up, because every single one of us has a point in our history where we shut down for one reason or another, even if it wasn't so overt as somebody bullying us for something that we said or did. Right. An example I always think about for myself is when I was, I think I was around 12 years old and just like in that, you know, puberty stage. And I, I was in the shower and I was just having a good day and I was listening to the radio, just ripping, singing to whatever was on the radio. And I remember coming out of the shower and I, I turned off the shower, stepped out of the shower, I was still singing. And I heard my mom from downstairs say, what is that noise? And she was talking about me singing. There's nothing else going on. She's talking about me singing. And I think she meant it like playfully, like, what is that noise? You're singing so loud. That's, you know, but she didn't say that. And I received it as, I sound like shit. I didn't sing again until I was 25 years old. Yeah. At least not out loud to people. So those messages or those external stimulus that we get from, whether it's from a, a person or people, and we, we subscribe meaning to, affects the way that we assess safety in our environments. So maybe it's the moment that you got caught, you know, smoking up or drinking too much And it further causes us to shrink more and more inside of ourselves because of maybe it's someone else's fear, right? I mean, fear from a loved one who is afraid that they might lose you, but that fear of losing you, it comes out and it's expressed in a, what are you thinking? What are you doing to our family? You're so selfish. You're so blah, blah, blah. That further reinforces, oh, I can't share this with anybody. I need to go further inward. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about just the shame of addiction first. And and maybe you want to weave a little bit of your story into this, because I know that I do want people to benefit from your candidness in in sharing your story, because I think that's that alone is medicine for other people out there to know that they're not the only ones. Yeah, I'll start at the beginning, but I won't give all the details. I started using drugs when I was 11. And like all kids, I wanted 
to have fun. I wanted connection. I wanted acceptance. And like, boom, I got all three of those with a friend group built into it immediately. Again, like the lone wolf path, it worked until it didn't. And I used some drug every day, you know, until I was 30. Not necessarily a hard drug every day, but something to change my state. And if it was about getting high, like I would have stopped when I was 15. I was one of those guys that was like going to GNC and getting like the pre-workouts and taking four or five scoops of them. And, you know, then, you know, on a Tuesday, not even working out with them, I was willing to get creative. And at the time, it was just totally normal to me. The people I hung out with, in some ways, my family system, it was very normal to operate in that way. What I know now is that I was desperate to regulate my nervous system. I was desperate to feel safe. I didn't know it, you know, at the time, but through doing a lot of this work, I was sexually abused from six until eight. I was sexually abused again when I was 13. All of that was in me, like all this pressure to keep it down. I was using to stay numb. I was using to feel some sense of control in my life because if I wasn't, that stuff started to creep to the surface and I could feel it. I didn't know what it was, but I could feel it start to come up and it didn't feel safe at all. And I knew my go-to, I'll smoke a joint. I'll drink some Bacardi later on. I'll smoke some crack. I'll do some meth. I'll do some bath salts. Underneath all of that was this desperation, this isolation, this shame, right? Because if, if that came up and out and I had to look at that and I had to do that alone, I was afraid that whatever it was that was trying to come out would actually destroy me, Mm. right? It would make me do something insane or I would start crying. I would start crying and I would never be able to stop. Like that was an actual fear for me. Let's hone in on that point for a second because I think that's a very important piece of the puzzle here is the imagination. What we imagine will be the case will happen to us if we... The visual that came to my mind was I think of like a, like a wild animal that you get into a cage and, but the lock's broken on the door. So you have to hold the door shut and the animal's just trying to get out. And so you do everything that you possibly can to keep the animal in the cage because you think um, the imagination says, well, if that animal comes out, I'm done for, Yeah, I'm over. So can you zero in on that a little bit more and describe that a bit as to what does the imagination tell you will happen if you can't keep it under wraps? Again, for me, I didn't know what it was. So I can speak to the feelings. Like I didn't, I, I didn't know what was going on inside me. You know, the, I think as children, we invent monsters to keep our secrets safe. And so, you know, because a child is afraid of a monster, I'm going to put it with him. And anytime I get near it, I'm going to go away. And so I can speak to how I was feeling, right? When I was around people, I never felt at home. There was a part of me that felt like I was weird, that I didn't quite follow the conventions properly. I was always looking to others to figure out how to be in certain situations. I'd go to a party and I'd immediately start fantasizing about how I could get out of there and leave school. I would get so homesick, right? And homesick is a longing for safety and comfort. I would get so homesick that I would go into the bathroom and I'd cry right? Throughout elementary school, I'd go to summer camp and I'd choke down tears for a week straight and never let it out. And so for me, it's like emotions are indicators, are not random either. They're indicators of something going on inside of us that wants to be acknowledged. 
right? The emotion is something inside of us that's maybe stuck and looking for a release. You know, that's why we don't always have to relive a memory to help release it from the body, right? We can shake, we can scream, we can punch a pillow. And so for me, like for 20 years, I didn't know what was going on inside of me, but the emotions that were driving me were that I felt anxious. I felt like an alien on planet Earth. I felt isolated. I felt weird. And I knew that when I would get high, that would go away. And even if it was just for a minute, you know, in the end, literally, it would go away for a minute and then it would come back. And so I'd have to continue using, continue using, continue using. And, you know, that's why for me, you know, we talk about these gateway drugs and people are like, you know, marijuana ain't no thing. Well, yeah, on the surface, right? It's certainly not fentanyl, but marijuana taught me how to lie to my family. It taught me how to pretend that I was something that I wasn't, you know, sitting at dinner really baked and pretending that I wasn't like I got to practice that over and over again taught me how to steal. It taught me how to actually like make an illegal exchange, you know, when I was 16. All of those skills are transferable to the harder drugs, right? Move up to cocaine. You need to be able to do all of that. Move up to heroin. And so there's this myth that I push against that there's no such thing as a gateway drug. Tobacco for me taught me how to smoke pot. And so it cascades in that way. That's actually really poignant, man. I want to dip into that for a second because I you know me, man, I'm always thinking that we're always practicing something. And some of the bigger things that we've talked about more frequently on the show are things like integrity, practicing honor, accountability. And just in what you shared about substance use and the need to be secretive and hiding things, lying, cheating, stealing, all of those things you just said, those are practices, right? We practice and you get really good at it too. And so I think of it just as going on a hike and at some point you, you took a wrong turn. You went down a trail you didn't want to go down, but you went really far. And depending on how far your practice in the lying, the cheating, the stealing, getting high, whatever you have to do to get high, depending on how far you go, that could seem like, oh my God, I have to go all the way back to that turn to find my way back and then begin walking that path. How do I even do that? It seemed, I could imagine why that seems overwhelming. Yeah. I can imagine why that would discourage someone from even turning around and taking yeah. another step in that direction. So I just want to, you know, kick that back over to you and maybe talk about your experience because you found a way. Well, it's discouraging and it's overwhelming because it's usually something we've never done, right? Like if we've practiced something for 10 years, it might as well be all we've ever practiced, right? Maybe even if we practice something for five years, right? Like the hiding, the armoring up, right? People who don't have any issue with addictions still might do that kind of thing. And so like day one, I think about my first day clean, right? After this long stretch of chaos, it felt so brutal to me. Some days I, I think, how am I alive? That's motivation today. It used to be really scary, but it's like, fuck it. I'm alive. Like, let's rock. Like this is borrowed time, right? So I'm going to do as much as I can to serve this place. I'm so imperfect in that, like so imperfect in that, but I do return to that. And so ground level day one, I was asking myself to do something that I had never done, which was to go through a day without some external thing to regulate my nervous system so that I could feel safe. Of course, that's going to feel scary. 
right? Of course, that's going to feel daunting and overwhelming. And of course, for that, we shouldn't do that alone. Like, Mm -hmm. we can't do that alone. It's understandable that our go-to is like, I'm going to grit this out until I get my stuff together. And then I'll go and I'll, I'll connect with people. I haven't seen that work very well in my own life. And then in the, in the people who I connect with, like being seen on day one in the absolute mess by another person who can hold that space with us, that can be the, the beginning of a new pathway. And like to build on your, your image there, like, yeah, we go down this pathway and it leads us into just this wilderness where we're falling apart. We don't need to take that same pathway back, that there may be other ways to navigate there may even be a flare that we could send up, right? That mm. was me. Like I had to ask for help. Mm. I had to ask for help. I had to lay down my sword. You know, at that point it was made out of tinfoil. You know, it was a pretend mm. sword, but I was still like going after it. And I had to ask for help. And if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't be here today. Yeah, man. I really like what you said about not necessarily having to just retrace your steps. In fact, I don't even know if that is how our karmic path works, right? I mean, and Either way, it's it's not an easy road back. And I think that's why a lot of people fail. I mean, I think there's somewhere around 100,000 deaths in the U.S. every year related to opiate addiction and yeah. opiate abuse. And so there's a lot of people who don't find their way for one reason or another, I'm sure. And yet there's many people like yourself who has found a way, who did reach out for help, who broke through, who decided that, because I think to bust it out of the, the substance and drugs and all that, that conversation for a second, I think it's also very synonymous with someone who hasn't been working out for a long time. And yeah. day one, get yourself to the gym, get in there. You know, that first day is going to suck. And the first week's going to suck because you're not as strong as you once were. You can't do the things that you once used to be able to do. The brain is like, oh, what's the point anyway? I'm never going to get back to where I was. It hurts, you know, the first three days you can barely, you know, get up off the toilet after you take a shit because you're just so (laughs) sore. And there has to be something bigger that motivates you past that. And I think there's very few people who actually have the individual constitution to provide that for themselves. So echoing what you said about community and the importance of doing this together. I mean, even in something as simple as having a gym buddy, right? Having somebody to an accountability buddy that you go to the gym with who may be in the same situation you are, right? If we're talking about drugs and substances, maybe it's day one for both of you guys getting clean, but having somebody else to, because chances are that if you've got somebody else there that you won't be at the lowest point of your low at the exact same time as that compounds and you add another person and another person. And before you know it, now you've got a small circle or a community of people who are going through this, the likelihood of everybody being at absolute ground zero at the same time is virtually nil. And then you can help each other out. You can lift each other up. And that also just the brain chemistry stuff that starts firing off the dopamine hits you get by being of service. That's another thing that I know has been really instrumental in your journey is finding a way to leverage your experience into service to others that gives you some of that hit that you used to get from being high, I I imagine. So I'll hand that back off to you, man. What about that element that has helped you on your journey? That's at the core of it. Like when when I wake up in the morning, that's actually what drives me. I've done every drug in the book, every single one that I could think of ordering them off the deep web. Like I just wanted to do them all. And I'm not exaggerating when I'm able to have a connection with somebody else and I'm able to help them 
in some tangible way, my brain lights up better than, than anything that I'd done in the past. There's a version of me about 10 years ago that would have just said that is such bullshit because it felt unfathomable. It happens every week, sometimes every day. It's not like this thing where I'm out there looking like, oh, who can I help? Like, this guy looks like he needs saving. Instead, it's about, you know, connecting into a community of other people who are maybe doing it in their own way. And those opportunities to make my message, they arrive because I, I'm in a place where I can actually embody that. And again, this is also important to say, when I first got clean, I was counting days, you know, and I got a year clean and I thought that meant something. And then I got two years clean and I thought that meant something. I got four years clean and I meant, thought that meant something. And then I relapsed and I realized that it didn't matter how many years I had stacked up right? What mattered is how I was showing up today. Like, again, for every addict or every person who experiences addiction that I've ever met, like bringing the time frame in to about 24 hours, that feels really good and manageable. When we start saying like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get to smoke crack again in my entire life. Like there's a part of my brain, even today, that short circuits and is like, that doesn't sound like any fun. But when I say I'm not going to smoke crack today, I'm like, I have absolutely no desire to smoke crack today and I'm going to do that all day long, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's all of these moving parts that step forward and underneath it, it's service, right? For people who go to 12-step meetings, a, a classic thing that they have a newcomer do is they make coffee and making coffee might be the first thing that they've contributed to a group or to society in, you know, years. And like you described, there's a little bit of a dopamine hit in there when they're sitting around, everyone's drinking coffee and you're like, I made that shit. Like mm-hmm. I made that coffee that everyone's enjoying. <laughs> and so like playing with, with some of the wiring of addiction, right? That has us craving those elevated states, but getting to them in this other way. Some would call it a, a spiritual path. There's certainly been spiritual experiences that I've had that are a direct result of the mess that I was in. You know, foundationally, if I survived, if we survive the horrors of addiction, we get to contribute something more. Again, that borrowed time piece, yeah. like I, mm-hmm. it's not super empowering for me to, to think about that every day. But in a conversation like this, it's like the way I'm stunned uh, that I'm here. And so that motivates me today. Yeah, I love what you just shared there. Going back to the passing of my brother Silvio, just this, you know, this past two weeks, although they've been incredibly challenging, some of the hardest two weeks I've ever faced in my life, certainly in recent memory, there's been a lot of beauty in it, you know, just celebrating his life and a lot of ceremony and a lot of honoring of him and family and bringing together of community. So many gifts, not that I would give all of them back to have him here. However, so many gifts that have come through. And one of the things we did a ceremony last Thursday night to honor him at night and I just felt really connected to him and I was asking him just to, you know, just, just having a conversation with him. And one of the messages that I heard come through in his voice is like, just like he was whispering it in my ear was you're not broken. You're Mm -hmm. only gathering strength and experience so that you can give your gifts to others. And when I heard it, 
it sounded like he was saying that to me so that I could say that out loud so that other people could hear it. Cause I think that's probably something he needed to hear. And I'm sure that there's hundreds of thousands of millions of people out there who also need to hear that regardless of what your dark, deep, murky cave looks like and feels like right now, that none of you, none of us are ever broken. We're only gathering experiences and strength for what's next, for what we're really here to do. And so to me, just hearing you say what you said really confirms and validates that statement that, and I get that that conceptually is a hard thing to understand when you're in the middle of a bender, that that might not make any sense. That might not be the thing that goes and grabs you out of your state of numbness, but to just say that message out loud and reinforce it as much as possible, because you're a living, breathing example of that, Zach. You're doing that by being here on this podcast, by working with the men and women that you do by vocalizing your message courageously out into the world and owning it. That's exactly representative of that, of how you turned your experiences and your pain and the parts of you that you felt were broken, unlovable into something that other people can relate to and get benefit from. Yeah. And in hearing that I'll continue the credit giving, like I stand on the shoulders of giants. Like if there weren't people who had figured this out, even, you know, a little bit before me, I would have had nowhere to go. Right. Like I say this honestly, like I don't take any of the credit for this. None. I take the credit for like moving my body into the space to begin to receive a new message. But I mean, I stand on the shoulders of giants and and all the people who have squared off courageously with addiction, even for one day. I mean, they're the people who I admire most in this world because I know that it's not badness. As a culture, it's like, bad addicts do a ton of terrible stuff yes like no denying that and underneath it there is so much pain driving that behavior why would someone you know steal from their grandma why would someone rob you know a family right if there wasn't something deeper than just they're a bad person driving that right underneath there there's so much pain and for me there was like i was willing to do anything to keep myself away from that pain and that meant take any, anything that would come across my way. Today, I can see I wanted to feel safe. I wanted to feel grounded. I wanted my nervous system to feel regulated. I had no idea that that's what I was doing. But underneath it all, and those are the practices that I use today, right, to keep myself right here instead of right there in the chaos, there's so much great stuff in what you were sharing and, and you mentioned the word addict again. First of all, I want to ask you, is that a word that you use to when you're telling your story and identifying yourself? Shorthand, yeah, it still comes out. But what I learned is that it, it's not particularly empowering for me anymore. When I first got clean, I needed to hear that over and over and over again so that I could get a little bit of humility in there and to identify with other people. It's like, okay, like these are other addicts in recovery. Over time, I, it lost its effect, right? I started to use it like as almost an excuse where it's like, well, I'm an addict. Of course, I'm going to do this kind of thing. And so today I, I describe myself as someone who's experienced addiction. And from there, it's not like my whole being, right? It's not my whole state. It's a long experience that I had. You know, if that changes... I'm happy to roll with that. But for now, the language around it is I'm a man who's experienced addiction. And I appreciate your 
explanation of that because that's actually confirms a little bit of what I thought. So I think that there's that stage where someone could be in denial. But they say the first step is admitting that you have a problem or admitting that you you know you can't do this by yourself, right? So like you said, the humility of the term addict or addiction, just owning that, saying, yeah, you know what? I'm addicted. There's something that has power over me. And I think really it just comes back to what part of the story are you in that you're telling yourself? Because like you said, you know, in the beginning, it's helpful because that part reinforces, oh, I need to keep surrounding myself with other people like this in order to facilitate my healing. I need to keep reminding myself of this so I don't go back to believing my own bullshit that this is not a problem and then justifying these behaviors again. But then at some point, and I've known other people who had identified as addicts and realized I can't do that to myself anymore is because like you said, it becomes a disempowering term. Like that's my ceiling. The best I'm ever going to be is some addict who's in recovery. And then what does that do to the psyche of the brain? And also even outside of the internal process of the story, just the social story, even the external of yourself, what other people begin to say or believe about you because you're an addict or you're someone who's maybe you've been sober for 10 years, but you're still an addict. You're the addict in the family, the, all of those things that go with it. What is the experience like? And what are your thoughts about how we use that word as a society so that we can all be helping to address this issue? I mean, I think in general, it's not a desirable label for someone like elementary school. I want to be a fireman. I want to be a nurse. I want to be an addict. Like we don't condition ourselves to really want that. And so ground level, I think that at a glance, it's not an empowering thing. I'll say this, when I'm in a meeting, a 12-step meeting, I say I'm an addict, right? That's the custom there. I'm not someone who wants to like rage against the system inside of this program that like saved my life. Like I'm happy to be a part of that languaging there. The rest of my day, like I said, it does, it's not helpful. And so I think inside certain containers, I mean, to push a little bit against what you said, there are people in my life who say, I'm a recovering addict and that is like the enlightenment of their life. And they are like, they've arrived. Like that is the goal for them. It's not my goal, right? I love those people. I support them in that, but that's really not my goal to have that be the ceiling of my life. I want my experience with addiction to be a part of my story. I want it to be something that will help one other person, right? That's enough for me there. I don't need to go and save the world and eradicate addiction. Like if I can help a guy, right, get clean, like look in the mirror, that works for me. And if I can do that consistently, even better. But if I'm not doing that for me, like all bets are off. It's a mess. And it goes back really quickly. Sure. Well, I'm mostly interested in expanding this conversation to folks maybe who have had addictive pasts. I personally recognize myself as having been addicted to marijuana and tobacco for a significant chapter of my life. Something that I also experienced the ins and outs of, you know, I would say the, the starts and stops of being in and out of that, those addictive behaviors and patterns. Currently I am not, which I'm grateful for. I'm not naive enough to think that those temptations will never come back, but I also feel like I've gotten to a place where what I'm committed to and what matters to me in my life enough is such that making the decision to do those things every day is really easy for me currently. Even for folks who haven't ever experienced that, I believe we all experience comfort seeking and addictive behaviors, even if it's not substances, but anyone who's not experienced that with substances or drug use, the conversation around having greater safety and compassion around conversations of addiction is really, really important. 
essentially, because of exactly what we've been talking about here today, because of the social stigmas of being an addict, being someone who has a mental illness or a substance abuse issue. And I'm trying to be really sensitive about the terminology because I think I think we're also due for an update in how we actually speak about these things too. But in the interest of time, we'll just call it what it is right now. I'm interested in your perspective on how we can create even safer containers, being people who maybe haven't gone through that ourselves. Because it's one thing to go through it and have compassion based off of, hey, I've been there before. And who am I to judge you? Because that was me five years ago, five minutes ago, right? But what about for folks who have never had that experience? Well, there's a place for you too. Something that has been true for me is that as someone who experiences addiction now with our new language there, as someone who experiences addiction, I wasn't created in a vacuum, right? I was a part of a family system that helped create me, that helped create like the the golden child, that helped create the scapegoat, right? Like people who have never experienced addiction, but have people in their lives who are raging with it. There's a place for you in this conversation too. It affects everybody. I mean, even people who have nobody with addiction in their lives, they're being affected by it in indirect ways. And so I think if we're going to have a conversation around addicts, we also have to have a conversation around people in their orbit, people who are who love them, people who depend on them, people who are affected directly by it, so that as many people can be included in the conversation so that we're not just scapegoating the people who are falling down all the time or the people who can't seem to get their stuff together. That's so frustrating to watch, right? It's frustrating to be that. And it's a part of a bigger conversation. If we want to get like really resourced on this, Gabor Mate is amazing. He's got a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. There's a video called Everything We Know About Addiction is Wrong that really just lays it out really simply, this idea that the opposite of addiction is not recovery, it's community, it's human connection. And then there's still people who love like the disease model of addiction. And there's a movie called Pleasure Unwoven, which goes in and it explains in the same way that, you know, if you have diabetes, it affects your pancreas. This medical doctor devoted his life to figuring out what's happening in the brain and the limbic system that makes somebody addicted to something. And he, he spells out the disease model of it. Again, I don't think that there's one path toward recovery. I don't think that there's one path toward like a better, more empowering life. And so whatever works for a person, if it's thinking about it as a medical condition, a disease, and that's what gets you in, good, go run at that. If it's the community thing, joining a men's team, Connecting with a recovery, 12-step recovery, connecting. There's all kinds of other kinds of recovery. It's not just 12 steps. Run at that. Go, right? Most people have a phone in their pocket. You can go on a website and talk to somebody who gets it 24 hours a day. There isn't this need to like have this big master plan. It's like hold your breath and take that one action that's going to change the pattern of your brain. And it's usually talking to somebody else, making some sort of contact with a human being. But back to your question, I think if we're going to talk about addiction, we have to talk about everybody who's affected, include them in the conversation too. I love that, man. I know we were coming up on time here, so I want to make sure we tie it up in a nice, neat bow here. 
But any last words or mentions you would say to anybody out there who's hearing this, who's really receiving your message, knows that they're in a place where they want to make a change and they just don't know how, anything that Anything else to say? Any words of encouragement or advice? Well, I want to put some action behind my words and say any man who's listening to this right now, if something I said resonated or if something I said made sense to you, or if you want to do that thing that I just described, hold your breath and make a connection with another human being, reach out to me. The easiest place for that, I'm not going to give out my phone number, but the easiest place for that is Instagram, Facebook, make contact with me. I will respond back. I will hold space with you and I'll help you get resourced. That's beautiful, man. I'll have you give us those links and contacts in just a second here. Let me shoot some rapid fire questions at you before we wrap. So the one thing you've learned in your life you wish you knew back when you were 18 years old. Slow down to speed up. I like that one. And what do you think is the most important value to have as a man? Low hanging fruit, integrity. But what I want to say is curiosity. And go for it, man. Tell us where people can go to find you, uh, people who want to work with you, who want to experience more of what you have to offer. Share all that info up, please. To make quick contact, Instagram, I'm at Strengths Life. That's S T R E N G T H S L I F E. Facebook, I'm Zach Carlson, Carlson with an E N. And then if you want to do deeper work, I work with guys one on one. You can visit my website. It's ZachCarlson.com. Again, that's Z-A-C-H-C-A-R-L-S-E-N.com. And I pop up here and there, podcasts. But then the other thing that I would say is join the fire circles. It's easy. If you're going to take a step and it's not contacting me, it's not going, join the fire circles and just see what it feels like to be you in a space where other men are there to be them. You owe it to yourself. I know that I owed it to myself to have that experience. And I went into my first men's team without making the commitment for life. I wanted to try it out first and um, get on a team, start getting seen by other men because all the shit that you think is so dark and nasty and that you're the only one, you're so not. You're so not. And it's the best feeling in the world to actually feel that and know that. I second that, you know, finding a space, getting yourself in fire circle is a great place to do that. I've loved having you in there for all these years, Zach. And yeah, man, just really appreciate you bringing your medicine and your gifts. You know, I I love you and I care about you very much. And hearing you share your story from an empowered place is one of the most beautiful things in the world to me, man. So I'm going to cut you loose because I know you have another appointment to get to, but really grateful to have you here, brother. Thank Mm -hmm. you for your truth. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for being a beacon, even though I know you hold that very humbly and modestly, I really see you as a man who is genuinely showing up in the world to make a difference. And I appreciate that. Thank you, brother. Holding up the mirror. I see. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, brother. All right, man. Well, we'll get you on here again sometime in the future, Zach. But until then, man, have a great day. All right. Thank you so much, Jenny. All right, family, make sure you head over to risingman.org to check out all the links and resources for this episode and others, as well as all the opportunities we have for you to become a bigger part of the Rising Man community and to get more out of your life and your journey as a man. Please subscribe to the podcast and the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the Rising Man Movement. Follow us on Instagram at Rising Man Movement so that you get all the content, all the information that we're dropping each and every week. Shout out to everybody who's out there repping the Rising Man, supporting this movement, the leadership team, the men who are 
core and central to producing The Rising Man in every which way that you do. Every one of you guys who's out there listening, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for supporting this movement. Thank you for supporting the mission of Rising Man and continuing to help us spread our reach and reach more men's hearts because that's what we're all here to do. Until next time, rise up and claim your destiny. Your destiny.